0: All right, uh, good morning. Thanks, guys, for being here uh, with me and with us. This morning, forgive me, I do have a really bad cold, so I'm going to sound awful. But this morning, we are continuing our series on the vision of our church. And for two months, basically, since uh, the beginning of April, we've been talking about what kind of church we want to be and how we can be that church. So let me read our mission statement again. The Austin CSI Mission Church exists to be An authentic church of Jesus Christ that demonstrates and declare his gospel through worship, evangelism, discipleship, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal. We seek to faithfully live out the traditions of the Church of South India in the context of Austin, Texas. So basically with this vision series, what we're doing is we're breaking down that statement into its constituent parts to unpack it and make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, And for three weeks, at the beginning of this series, we looked specifically at the gospel, which is not advice about do this or, you know, don't do that, but it's news. It's a claim about reality. It's good news that Jesus Christ, who was crucified and killed by the Romans and the Jews, rose again from the dead and is now the Lord and rule of the world. We're saying that that is a fact about reality. And the question is, do you believe in that or do you not believe in that? Do you trust in that or do you not trust about in that? Do you think that's a historical fact or is that just a fantasy and we're just fooling ourselves and we're just you know coming here to hang out, have fellowship, and keep up some traditions? But that central claim is not true. That's what the gospel is, and that's the question we have for ourselves. Uh, and if we believe that, then we believe that by his blood we're freely part. We, we are freely offered pardon from our sins, uh, we are freed from the rule of sin, the death and the devil which destroys us, and we're given the Holy Spirit which joins us to his body and gives us uh, everything, we inherit everything in the world. We will rule in the coming kingdom of God. So last week we started, um, so that, that was the gospel, and then last week we started looking at that statement and we understood what the gospel was, we were on the same page for that, and then last week we, we looked at worship. And what is worship? Uh, we looked specifically at Psalm 1, and we talked about how everyone, really when you understand it, is worshiping something. Everyone has something that is the driving force of their life, and it's different for every person. Some people want to make their parents proud. Some people want to live the best life I can live. I just want to experience everything that there is. So experience that emotion, that thrill, that's your God. Uh, some people are you know, focusing on relationships, or sex, or career, or money. The idol is different for everyone, but everyone worships something. So the question is not, do you worship? The question is, what you worship? And so we talked about that, and we talked about the reason why it's so important for us to gather here weekly is, uh, you know, remember that illustration about the jeweler, right? The jeweler who looks at the diamond, and it's only by examining the diamond that you start to see how much it's worth, how beautiful it is. And that's what we do when we come together in corporate worship. When we go through the liturgy, when we hear the message, when we intercede for the life of the world as we're going to do after the message. When we sing hymns, like, you know, the words for Kerry Job, I don't really know the song that well, but I love the lyrics because it is such a beautiful truth. And when we start to do that, we are reminding ourselves, you know, how precious God is. And then we convict ourselves, is this the God that I really worship? Is this what is really the driving force in my life? So that's what we talked about last week. And today we're going to talk about evangelism more specifically, about being an evangelistic church. So first, let's get our definitions down. The word evangelism comes actually from the Greek word euangelion. Uh, The u means good. Angelion is basically news. So like, you know, the the word angel kind of comes from the Greek, actually, angle. Uh, It means bearer of good news. Uh, So euangelion means good news. It's basically the Greek word for gospel. Gospel is a Latin word, means good news, euangelion, Greek word, good news, same thing. So to be doing evangelism, to be an evangelist, is to basically be a gospel bearer. You are a messenger of good news out in the world. And every person who truly believes in Jesus Christ is called to be this gospel bearer, to be this evangelist. And that makes some people nervous because they don't feel qualified. Um, and we're going to talk about that. So today we're going to start by looking at evangelism in the early church. How did it happen in the early church? The problems we see with evangelism today. And then finally, how we can, you know, in our very modest and humble ways, try to create an evangelistic culture in this church with what we have, with the resources we have. Um, So the first, evangelism in the early church. The first public act of evangelism in church history happens actually in Acts chapter 2. Are you guys familiar with Acts? It's basically... Acts is basically listing everything that happens to the disciples after Jesus goes back to heaven. So Jesus is ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's ruling the world. And he tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem because he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to basically take this message that he is actually king over the entire world, all over the world. Um, and at Pentecost, that's exactly what happens. That's Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire descend on the gathered disciples. There's a large sound of a rushing wind. And so the sound is so large that people actually start to flock to the house and they're like, what is going on? And then when they come there, they see all these people like babbling in different languages. And so some of them think, oh, these guys are just drunk. But others of them, because these folks have actually come from nearby nations to visit Jerusalem for a Jewish festival, Other people were like, hey, actually, I think that's my language. I think that's Persian. I think that's Median. I think that's Parthian. How the heck do these guys, these these guys don't look that rich. They don't look that educated. How are they speaking my language? So that's when Peter stands up. And this is the first act of public evangelism in the history of the church. Peter stands up to address all the people. And he basically says, No guys, promise, we're not drunk. He actually says it's 9 in the morning. It's too early to be drunk. (laughs) Maybe that's not true for some of us sometimes, but he says it's 9 in the morning. It's too early to be drunk. We've been given the gift of tongues by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the prophecy in the book of Joel that announces that the last days are here. God is beginning a new work in the world. That's a promise in the uh, the book of Joel. And so I'm going to pick up on the rest of Peter's speech in Acts 2, verses 22 to 39. It's a little long, but try and follow along with me because it's actually really interesting. Men of Israel, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed this man by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freedom from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So side note here, basically David is in this psalm that Peter is quoting, saying, You won't let me die. You are going to free me from hell. Now back to Peter's speech, verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David, he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day because he was a prophet he knew that god had sworn with him an oath that he would put one of his descendants on the throne forever for seeing this david spoke of the resurrection of the messiah saying he was not abandoned to hell nor did his flesh experience corruption this jesus god raised up and of that all of us are witnesses Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So again, this is the first act of evangelism in the early church and what do we see? So I I think we actually have four lessons from the early church for us. Uh, First we see that evangelism is not necessarily about shoving your views in someone's face. Uh, I think that's unfortunately a model of evangelism we've inherited but notice here the people come to the disciples to figure out what's going on, what's happening. Unless there is something about our lives uh, that has changed that is attractive, Paul later talks about it as like the aroma of Christ, like there's a smell about us that attracts people to us, our evangelism is going to fall flat. If there's no changed life, you have no credibility. You know what I mean? I think a lot of us sense that. They know that. We know that. So what is that something that gives us that aroma? And ultimately, I think this passage shows and the rest of the scripture shows, it's the Holy Spirit empowering us to live out the gospel. So so that's the first lesson. It's not about shoving your views in someone's uh, face. It's about living out the gospel in a way that is attractive to other people so that they're drawn to you. Second, once people come to the disciples asking what's going on, we see that Peter responds by giving a clear statement of the gospel. So... Verse uh, 24, God raised him up, God raised Jesus up, having freedom from death because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. Verse 36, therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. The early church lived with something that um, psychologists, sociologists called relational integrity. What does that mean? You know, like a lot of us, we present different faces to, uh, depending on what the group we're in. Right, relational integrity means that you don't hide your core, integ- your core identity from the people you are with. Uh, they don't force their views on people. But when asked, "Hey, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that?" you're unapologetic in explaining that the reason is because you're a Christian. The reason is because you're a gospel. The reason is because of the gospel. But in order to do that, first of all, your core identity has to be as a Christian. It's not something else. And second of all, you have to be able to actually explain what the gospel is. Do you get that? You have to know what the gospel is. Because I think a lot of times the reason why people don't talk about the gospel, don't explain, hey, the reason I did this is because of this, is they don't know what the gospel is. Or they don't know how to explain it. Third, we see that when Peter is explaining the gospel, he contextualizes it. He uses... Uh, Jewish ideas and Jewish language and Jewish authorities to appeal to Jewish people. The people who come around, they're from neighboring nations, but they're actually all Jews. You can see that if you look at the text, Acts chapter 2. They're all Jews who came for uh, a festival. That's why they were in Jerusalem. Um, And so when Peter talks to them and tries to explain the gospel to them, what is he quoting? He's quoting the book of Joel, uh, which is an Old Testament uh, Hebrew Scriptures prophecy. He's quoting David, two Psalms by David, Psalm 16 and then Psalm 2. He's quoting all these authorities that Jews would know. So is that the only way we can use? Uh, we can explain the gospel. No, because later on, if you look in the New Testament, Paul goes to Athens, Greece, right, center of philosophy, center of Western rational thought. Uh, And when he goes there, he doesn't use the book of Joel to explain the gospel. He starts talking to them in philosophical categories that they understand. He starts talking to them in terms of the gods that they are all worshiping. And then they had a shrine to an unknown god. Do you guys remember this story? Kind of, And he's like, I'm I'm here to talk to you about that god, the unknown god you're praying to, because he's actually the ruler of all. So you have to adapt uh, the way you explain the gospel to the culture that you're in. You don't change what the actual message is. Uh, The gospel is always the same. The gospel is that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord of the universe. That's the gospel. But the way you explain it, the way it makes sense to people, you have to be sensitive to what kind of culture they're in, what kind of uh, education they have, what kind of background, uh, things they're struggling with, that kind of stuff. And finally, look at the order of the evangelism here. First, the people come to the disciples asking what's going on then Peter explains the gospel, and then after hearing the gospel, many of them are convicted and believe, and then they ask Peter, what are we supposed to do? And that's when, and that's only when Peter responds in verse 38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit. In many evangelistic attempts I've been part of, um, I think we get the order wrong. I remember, uh, I think in 2010, so seven years ago. I was part of One Way. Uh, You know, you guys know what that is. And we were told to, like, prayer walk, which is fine. We should prayer walk. But then we were also instructed, try and engage them in conversations where you can pray the sinner's prayer with them, get them to repent their sins and believe in the gospel. And the thing is, that can work sometimes, but, like, a lot of times it is just not effective because it gets the order wrong. You have to, first of all, you have to attract them, right? Like what we were talking about. There has to be something about you that has credibility with them. And then when they ask, hey, why are you like that? I'm interested in the way that you are behaving. That's when you explain the reason why. And then when they're convicted, that's when you call them to repentance and faith. You don't just start off shoving and being like, hey, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. I remember when I was at UT, there would be guys, I don't know if they still are there, who are on like Guadalupe passing out tracks, telling girls that their shorts are too short and that they're going to go to hell and all this stuff. That's just not effective. And it's not in line with what the lesson from the early church. So just to recap... Four things we learned from the early church about evangelism. We have to live out the gospel. Ultimately, we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to attract people to us. We have to have relational integrity. We can't hide our Christianity from people. We should be open about it, but that requires us to actually know what the gospel is, what Christianity is. And third, when you explain the gospel, you have to adapt the way you talk about the gospel to the culture you're in. And finally, be mindful of the order. Don't just start off calling people to repentance and faith and telling them they're going to hell. That's not going to work. And it's not loving either. Okay, so those are the lessons of the early Church for us, for evangelism. And basically for the latter half of this message, we're going to be talking about applying those lessons from Scripture to us today. And so I think when we reflect on those lessons, we see five challenges for us being evangelists today. The first challenge is that we lack Honestly, let's be honest, we lack the changed lives that make the gospel attractive. The early church was radical, and it's not just the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues, prophesying. That's not the only thing that made them radical. They had real community. Uh, They had real friendship. They weren't just isolated, doing their own thing, pursuing their own goals with themselves in mind. Um, They shared everything. They owned everything in common. They didn't see their money as their own. Uh, they saw it all as God's. And so they were free. They were generous. They were uh, wasteful sometimes in giving it away for the sake of the poor in their midst. They respected widows and orphans. They gave respect to women in a society that devalued women, that either saw them as sex objects or saw them as you know useful vehicles for procreation, just having children. Christians saw women as created in the image of God, and they had a much more... Uh, elevated view of women. They looked different. They had a different aroma. Are the churches of Christ like that today? And I would say in many churches that we go to, not really. Um, I don't think we smell different. I think we are too much like everyone else in our culture. Consumers, always looking for the next cheap throw, always looking for the next high. Uh, we're chasing after romance, sex, money, career fulfillment, the idealized version of our best self, and without changed lives, people are going to see that. They're going to see we're just like them. We're just as confused as them. We're just as lonely as them. We're just as uh, you know, messed up as them. And they're not going to be interested. We're not going to have credibility. The second challenge is our lack of relational identity. Uh, relational integrity, sorry. I don't know if you've confronted this. I've definitely confronted this. As our culture has changed, as it's diversified, uh, as politics especially has become more polarized and people are divided, People's views of religion in general and Christianity specifically have become more fraught. So whereas before, I remember in like my early years of high school, if I spoke to a non-believer and said, I'm a Christian, they may be like, I disagree with that, they may be like skeptical, they may be confused or perplexed, but they would basically accept you even if they disagreed with you. Today I find more and more, if I speak to a non-believer and say, hey, I'm a Christian. I immediately confront some hostile questions. Like, does this mean you hate gay people? Are you a Trump supporter like Ubby? Do you hate immigrants and poor people? All sorts of questions come to you as soon as you say you're a Christian. And I think we know this, and so we try to manage it in one of two ways. There are some of us who only associate with just believers. We have no non-Christian friends, so that we never have to confront those kind of awkward questions. And then there are others of us Who basically hide our christian faith maybe people know we're christian but we kind of make it seem like it's not that important to us it doesn't inform the way we live and so we lack integrity because we're lying either we're lying about who we are to them or we're lying about who we are to ourselves if we tell ourselves that we are christian that's a problem for evangelism The third challenge is lack of cultural adaptation. And I think this is an especially interesting challenge for those of us who are second-generation Indian Christians born and brought up in the US. Obviously, a lot of our churches were started by our parents' generation, and they had specific cultural traditions that they remembered, that they replicated. Uh, But those churches have run into some problems because they don't understand the central fact about American culture today. And this is an assertion, but I think it's true. that is the crisis of authority. The fact about American culture we have to understand right now is that there is a basic lack of trust in anything. We see this everywhere. We see this in the economy, people talking about Wall Street. Uh, we see this in politics, people talking about Obama or Trump. We see this in the individual lives. Who are you to tell me to do this or that? I decide for myself. Uh, maybe you think that, but that's your opinion. Don't impose your opinion on me. There's a lack of trust. Everyone wants to figure things out for themselves because they don't trust outside people to tell them what is good for them. Um, this lack of trust is a huge issue for evangelism that we have to think through. It's actually a, a huge issue for discipleship, too, which we're going to talk about next week. Um, and we have to work through this and we have to pray through this. And we're going to talk about some ways to do that. The fourth challenge is the lack of understanding the order. And here I'm talking about a lot of evangelistic efforts from uh, folks that we've inherited over the years that were effective and can still be effective. I'm not necessarily knocking them down, but they are probably less effective now than they were in the past, and that's because of the changes in the culture and changes in the church. So so what am I talking about? Again, I'm talking about handing out the gospel tracts, which basically explain the gospel to people in three short paragraphs and then has a sinner's prayer at the end of it. That's nice. Uh, taking people to revival meetings with an altar call at the end. That can also work. Signing people up for a a four-week or eight-week course on what Christianity is to explain things. I want to be specific. Uh, When I say that these things are less effective, I don't mean that they're not good in terms of quality. Actually, I think in terms of quality, when I compare them to what I remember 10 or 20 years ago, they're a lot better in terms of quality. The tracks, the altar call meetings, the music, everything. It's way better. But it assumes that people are already curious about Christianity. That's why it's less effective. The problem with our culture today, with the lack of trust, with the huge diversity, with the fragmentation, is that many people are not just indifferent to Christianity, they're downright hostile to Christianity. They want nothing to do with it. So if you give them a track, they're going to put it in the trash. You know what I mean? They're not going to engage. So that, that is a challenge for For evangelism, and we have to engage with that problem. And finally, that brings us to the last challenge for final evangelism, which I think underlies all the others. It's the foundation for all the other challenges. And I think that's because that challenge is that we do not really understand the gospel. Because the gospel is that you are saved by sheer grace, there's nothing more you really need to do. Nothing you did earns you your salvation. Nothing you can do can make you more saved. It is all the work and power of Jesus Christ who defeated death and evil for you and who freely invites you to share in his entire inheritance of the world. You already have everything. You already have the most awesome life imaginable for eternity. That's promised to you. You already have, uh, you know, the lo- eternal love and approval of the only father you actually really need, of whom your human father is just a sign and pointer to. So if you really believe that, there's going to be a joy and peace in you that's attractive. And you're going to have relational integrity. You're going to be interested enough in other people that you're going to speak to them about the gospel in ways that they can actually understand it. And you're going to be sensitive enough to other people that you won't impose your views on them. You're going to shy away from calling them to repentance uh, until the time is right, so to be an ev- ev- so to be an evangelistic church sorry we don 't need new programs so much as we need to create a culture of people who really understand and believe in the gospel and so the question for us specifically here is how can we create that i know i 've given you guys uh, a lot of ideas already, like four challenges five uh, four lessons from the early church, five challenges for effective evangelism today i 'm going to end with three specific ways we can create an evangelistic culture here. But this is really important for the future of our church, so I hope you will bear with me and pay attention to these last points, and we can talk about it in the future. So first, I'll just tell you what the three points are ahead of time. We can create an evangelistic culture by teaching people practical theology, helping people understand basically what the gospel is and draw a direct implication to their life, We can create an evangelistic culture by empowering a movement of lay ministers so people don't think that evangelism is just for super-Christians. It's something for all of us. And finally, create rhythms in our church that promote multiple ways for a very diverse people in our fragmented culture to come in and engage. We can't basically just have one program. We have to have a series of graduated programs that take people from Uh, You know, basically low stakes, no confrontation with the gospel to high stakes, high confrontation with the gospel. That's kind of what we need to do. So first, practical theology. Quickly, there are um, four things, I think, that really keep people from evangelizing. That's pride, fear, pessimism, and indifference. And with our weekly worship and preaching, what we want to do is equip people to tear down those obstacles in their hearts that prevent them from uh, evangelizing. So first is pride. There's this idea there's an ugly smugness to some evangelism today. I have the truth. You don't. I'm right. You're wrong and I love telling you about it. That's not going to be winsome to anyone. Uh, But if you really believe that salvation is by grace, if you really believe in the gospel, then salvation is a gift, a pure unearned gift. You did nothing to work or receive. And if you really believe that you should be humble when you talk to non-Christians because you're not thinking "I, I am right, you are wrong. You're like, what a joke, even as crappy a person as I am. I have been born to this family. I've seen this truth, I've seen this light. Christ has put a claim on my life in my baptism. Somehow, no matter how crappy I am, I have this truth. And this person I'm talking to might be a more moral person than me, might be a more patient person than me, might be more intelligent than me, but I have the gift of Christ, and so I'm humbled. I don't think I'm better than that person. Actually, I think I might be a little worse. But I I can freely, so I can share my gift to them without that sense of superiority and smugness. you get what I'm saying? That's how the gospel applies to your pride. In the same way the gospel would apply to your fear. People are afraid of losing status, of losing face, of hurting their friendships by sharing the gospel. But if you understand the gospel, you believe you've already inherited everything. There's nothing you can lose. The gospel is a fact about reality. It's not do this and then you'll get that. It is a fact about reality. It's a promise You have ultimate assurance. And so if you really believe that, if you believe you already inherited everything, then fear is not going to keep you from evangelizing because what can you lose? You can't lose anything. It's Romans chapter 8. What do we have to fear? Who can uh, tear us down? You know, even if you kill me, I still have everything. I have the resurrection. There's nothing you can take away from me. So the gospel takes down fear as an obstacle to evangelizing. It also takes down pessimism Some people who evangelize have a bad habit of looking out at people and being like, oh, that person's a good candidate for me to talk to the gospel about. Uh, That person, probably not so much. Uh, Doesn't look like the right kind of people. What we're doing is we are taking the place of God and the Holy Spirit. And if you really believe that the Holy Spirit is empowering us and that God is the person calling people, then we have hope for everyone. There's no, uh, we have no right to say, hey, we should focus on this person, not that person. So pessimism is gone. And finally, indifference. This is a big one, I think, for people who are raised in church and don't really believe the gospel. Because if you really believe the gospel, if you believe there's a joy and peace and a love uh, everlasting that frees you from everything that is really corrupting you and making you into a worse and more hellish person, uh, then why would you not want to share that news with anyone? The the only reason you would not want to share is a lack of love a lack of love for your friend, or a lack of love for God. And that should raise the question in your mind, how much do I really believe this gospel anyway? So every week with our worship and preaching, we want to be giving you that practical theology, which will empower you to be uh, evangelists. The second way we want to create an evangelistic culture is by uh, basically sending the message that this is not something for just priests or for super-Christians. This is something for everyone. I'm not an ordained pastor or priest. I'm really a nobody i'm just a guy who loves jesus who sees a lot of beauty in the csi church and who wants to share that truth with the world as much as i can you know i don't get any money from this (laughs) this is not uh this is actually kind of hard sometimes when you're sick and you have to write a message and you also have work and stuff but if you love the gospel of jesus christ you don't count those costs right and that's the question for all of us i'm just like you we're just lay people right but we are capable, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to do amazing things if our love is for the gospel. The question is, where's our love? That's the question for us. And finally, um, we have to excuse me. Finally, we have to talk about uh, rhythms in the life of our church. Basically, in one year, our church should have a spectrum of—this is where we get to programs— In one year, our church should have a spectrum of programs that speak to the entire gamut, the entire diversity of our culture's engagement with Christianity. Again, low stakes, low confrontation with the gospel, high stakes, high confrontation with the gospel. Because if you have a series of steps of programs that people can engage with, that best allows you to capture the most amount of people. So let me be specific of what I mean. Let's say starting this fall, we started off with a concert sponsored by a church. That's it. No gospel message. Maybe just a short explanation at the beginning or in the middle. Hey, we're, this is the Austin CSI Mission Church. We're sponsoring this concert. That's it. That, there's no confrontation with the gospel at all. It's just, we're, it's just a gift to the community. Maybe it's a gift to campus. UT since we're so close. Next up is we have a public talk discussing some importance, uh, uh, issue of importance to the community. Like the role of women in society, I think that's a big one. Uh, racism, I think that's a big one, especially on campus. And we basically invite Christians, non-Christians together to hear this talk, again sponsored by the church, with some Christian ideas represented in the dialogue. Maybe the speaker's a, a Christian speaker, but he's not banging them on the head with Jesus. He's just talking about the talk. And you know, maybe in the question and answer it comes out that he's a Christian. Then you graduate to a public interfaith dialogue. Maybe we do this next year, like in the spring where we sit with leaders from different faiths, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and the the only point of the talk is not to convert them. The point of the talk is basically to say, hey, what is your faith? What are the tenets of your faith? I want to understand what it is you believe and why you behave the way you do. And then I can explain what Christianity is and why it makes sense to us, and we can see the commonalities and differences. Do you get what I'm saying? So it's taking people on a journey. It's not just saying, hey, you're going to hell, so believe the gospel. That's That's not the way it's going to work in our culture. Then maybe later on, you start a one-month book club where people who are interested in literature, I don't know, I'm just throwing ideas out here, a one-month book club where you read something by C.S. Lewis, uh, The Four Loves, or Mere Christianity, or some more specifically Christian-inspired book to get people talking about it. It's a small group setting. And then finally, you have a worship night with a clear gospel presentation an altar call at the end, maybe this is at the end of next year on campus, something like that, asking people to make a decision for faith. And then after that, that's when you have the four or eight week course explaining, hey, this is what it means to be a member of the church, that kind of thing. So that's the that's, that's spectrum of programs that I think our church needs to be able to do. Now, we're a small church, like we don't have many people, we don't have many resources, but I think we can do something like that. I think it's possible uh, to get us to to maybe not do six, but maybe three, three different programs like that through the next year. Uh, And so I think we really need to be convicted and praying about doing stuff like that. So next week, we're going to be back here to talk about discipleship. And then we're going to go on through uh, the series. We're probably going to end this series. I think the first week of June is going to be the last one. So uh, again, please uh, keep me in your prayers. Keep this church in your prayers. I think we have a lot of ambition. We just need commitment. So let's close our eyes and prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, for the good news of your gospel, Father. The good news that you were crucified for our sin, uh, that you rose from the dead and defeated the forces of evil uh, that are are real and that are trying to enslave us and that are trying to reduce us, uh, reduce our vision, reduce our ambition, Father. And we thank you that you are Lord now. You are ruling the world right now through the power of your Holy Spirit. You are sharing that rule with us uh, so that we can participate in the amazing work that you do and be agents of healing and reconciliation uh, and newness in the rest of this life. Father, we we pray that you give us all in our hearts uh, a conviction that we need to live for this gospel and be evangelists for this gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's all stand and recite the Apostles' Creed.